Brett Hannock. Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, if you would turn to Ezra 7, Ezra 7. We're going to finish the book today, I think. If not, um, well, we're going to finish the book whether we're done or not. Because we're getting the Minor Prophets next week. So we have 12 weeks in the Minor Prophets, and in June, Lord willing, we'll start um, Revelation. So Ezra 7. Uh, remember that Ezra was a scribe. The name Ezra is a short form of the word Azariah, which means Yahweh has helped. And when you read this book, it's extraordinarily clear that Yahweh helped Israel in numerous ways. This book was written about 446 B.C. Now the book after it, Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah actually comes back to the city in 444 B.C. So this book was written two years before Nehemiah showed up. He was written by Ezra, was the author. And the, the book of Ezra covers about a 92-year period of time from about 538 B.C. to about 446 B.C. So it covers a fair chunk of time at that point in time. Thomas Constable, one of the commentaries, uh, that I've read on Ezra says that the theme of the book of Ezra is God does not discard what he has chosen, but remakes it when it has failed, which should give us a lot of hope. Uh, it's not like in baseball. In baseball, it's three strikes and you're out of here. God must be a golfer. You know, if you blow one putt, you get another shot. If you blow another, now your score goes up, but you can keep swinging until you get the ball in the hole, right? So I never thought that God might be a golfer, but he might, you know. He's not, He's not? okay. <laughs> the patron saint of golf. The fact that God doesn't discard us when we fail should give us hope. Now the nation of Israel, as you know, failed God over and over and over and over and over again over the centuries. And yet God never threw them away. God had made promises he was going to bring them back into the land. And this book is all about God keeping his word and, and bringing them back into the land. The good news is, is that God is greater than our failure. And we have a lot of failure to bring to him, right? Pretty much daily, as a matter of fact. God is in the people restoration business. One of the most intriguing things about Scripture is God's specialty is to take what is broken beyond repair and to make it better than brand new. Amen. That is amazing. And you and I are testimonies of that, yes? That He has made us over again. Here's the key idea. God is always working. Now you need to underline the word always because sometimes in our life we're not convinced He's working. We think he might be on vacation. God is always working. Here's the key thought. When you trust and obey him, he will work through you today. And that's what Ezra is going to reveal to us. The book of Ezra, remember, divides itself into two parts. Real, real simple. Chapters 1 through 6, which we did last week. Chapters 7 through 10, which we're going to do this week. Chapters 1 through 6 begin in about 538 when King Cyrus of Persia says to the Jews, you can go back home. I want you to go back home and rebuild the temple. And that covers about a 23-year period because they finally got the temple done about 515. It took them about 23 years to get the temple done. Between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, if you've got your Bibles open, there's a 57-year gap. Some of you aren't even that old. So there's, this gap is older than you are, right? 57 years between Ezra 6 and 7. And in that period of time, we have about four Persian kings that ruled over Persia. Cyrus dies, and Darius rules from Persia from 521 to 486. Darius dies, and his son Xerxes rules from 486 to 465. Now Xerxes is called Ahasuerus, and that's the book of Esther. So the book of Esther goes right between Ezra 6 and 7. So if you want to just make a note of that chronologically where it shows up. Now Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, reigns until he's assassinated in 465 B.C., and his son is Artaxerxes. And that's the king that's in power in Ezra 7. So you're going to see chapter 7, verse 1, it says King Artaxerxes. That's the son of Esther's husband, Ahasuerus or Xerxes at that point. And chapter 7 takes place in one year, 458 B.C. Chapters 1 through 6 takes place over 23 years. This chapter takes place in one 12-month period. Let's go to chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after these things, always interesting to say, what are those things, right? Scripture's full of this. After these things, 
In the reign of King Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of blah, 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 all the way down to verse 5. It says, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of... Son of who? Aaron. Who's Aaron? Aaron's the high priest. So you want to know who Ezra is? Look at his family lineage. You knew... Ezra on the basis of his family heritage. How many of you ever seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Way back in the day, right? What was the name of the little Jewish village? Anatevka. What did we know about Anatevka? Everybody knew everybody, right? They knew your name, they knew your family, they knew your business, right? Because there was always gossips. And who was the main channel of information in Anatevka? The matchmaker, right? I mean, you know, she went to all the bunco parties, picked up all the scoop, right? I mean, that's yeah. Sorry. So we know Ezra by his family heritage. We know he's a direct descendant of the first high priest. So if you're like Ezra, have a family heritage of godly parents and grandparents and grandparents, thank God for it and pass that baton on. If you don't, be the first one in your family to start that heritage by coming to Jesus and passing that tradition on to your family. So Ezra was a source of blessing to those who followed him because he had inherited the blessing from those who were in front of him. Got it? Verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon. This is a very seminal verse, folks. This summary verse. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe. How do they describe him? After scribe, what does it say? Skilled in what? Boy, you could put that on your gravestone. That would be, that's pretty high praise. He was skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him what? The king granted him how much? Whoa. Go in front of the king who runs the empire, and he grants him all he requested because of why? Because the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, a scribe was a teacher, a recorder, a writer. It was a learned man who could read and write and transmit truth based on God's law. He's called a teacher four times in this book. And in the book of Nehemiah, he's called a scribe six times. This guy's got a reputation within the Jewish community for being a diligent student of God's word. It says he's skilled, which literally translates swift Already. Tradition says that Ezra had the entire Torah memorized. Entire thing. And could recite it at recall and write it out at recall. Now, if you do that, what would that require? A great deal of time and diligence, etc. Proverbs says, Solomon says in Solomon in Proverbs 22:29. Good verse, Proverbs 22:29. Do you see a man or woman skilled in their work? They will stand before kings. They will not stand before obscure people. Okay? Real skill is so scarce that leaders will pay a premium for it. Now, skill requires far more than raw talent. Raw talent is way overrated. Skill requires discipline of your time and of your interests. Developing skill demands that you eliminate many things from your life that distract you from what you're trying to accomplish. You know, we look at the, we look at the golfers, the scratch golfers. We look at the musicians, or you look at the chess players, and you go, man, what raw talent. No. They've just spent five, six, seven, eight hours a day for years and years and years and years developing that skill. We sit in this church and we have world-class preaching right here. Well, Roger's gifted, but Roger and Phil are very disciplined people. It's called 40 years times 20 hours a week. If you did the same thing for 20 hours a week and you learned every time you did it, you could develop some skill. I highly recommend that you, whatever you're doing, become skilled at it. Sloppy plumbers don't get it in my house. You, you know, if you're going to fix pipes... Do it with excellence, right? Same thing as the word. Be skilled. Be excellent. 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. God commands diligence. He says to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. He doesn't say as a scribe. He says as what? 
as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. If you're a workman who's building a wall, a block wall in this town, and you have some ADD and you get distracted and you forget to pull your level out occasionally, what's your wall going to look like? Might tip over, right? That's the thing he's talking about. He says, be a diligent workman so you don't build crooked walls. It says the word of God is living and active and sharper than... You know, you have to handle this word with care because it's sharp, right? If you're a surgeon and you have a scalpel, and let's say you're a patient. You really hope and pray that that surgeon is skilled with that scalpel, right? Because if they're skilled, they can heal you. But if they're not skilled with that scalpel, you could pick up some scar tissue and still not be healed. Wow. Be skilled. Ezra was skilled. Ezra cared enough to become skilled in studying God's word. The, the message here is go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. He was skilled in what? It says the law of Moses. The law of Moses was the Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture. God had told Israel who he was in those books and how to have a relationship with him. This is the most valuable treasure on the planet, and it's the only treasure that's going to leave the planet. Everything else is going to get burned up here, right? You are going to leave everything else here. What's it say? My word will never pass away, right? If you want to have a relationship with God, the most valuable treasure in the universe, the Bible tells us how. The Bible tells us how. Told us then, told us now. Come to Jesus through faith. And it says, the last phrase, it says, he received everything he asked for. Why? Say it again. The hand of God was upon him. Underline that in your Bible. You need to underline that. That is really, really critical. This phrase, the hand of his God was upon him, occurs six times in this book. When God repeats something, you assume that he really wants you to get it. Yes? When he repeats it, he says, escuche. It means the blessing of God. It means that God is going before you and making things happen. You ever had anything in your life happen that you didn't plan for? <laughs> Never. Never. I am so much in charge, nothing happens in my life I didn't plan for, right? Ever gone someplace and just happened to run into somebody that you weren't planning on and have a conversation, probably in Costco or something, right? You know, you're shopping. And that conversation from time to time will change your perspective. You weren't planning on it. You ever just happened to miss a serious traffic accident? You ever just happened to be in a serious traffic accident? Just happened? Minding my own business, somebody plows me from behind, right? You ever been diagnosed with an illness that causes you to reevaluate your entire life? Yeah? You ever got laid off from a job, go back to school to learn a skill that changes the direction of your life? At the time you got laid off, it sounded like a catastrophe. Five years later, you say, losing that job was the best thing ever happened to me, right? That's happened to me a number of times. If you can't explain it, God has been working. If you can't explain it, God's been working. He works behind the scenes. You can't see his hand, but he's working. You cannot explain the Jews leaving Egypt in 445 B.C. apart from the hand of God. You can't explain the Jews coming back to the land in 537 B.C. apart from the hand of God. You cannot explain the Jews repossessing their land on May 14, 1948, apart from the hand of God, right? There's a whole lot of stuff in your and my life we cannot explain apart from God's hand. The problem is we miss about 90% of it. And we say, well, it just happened. You know something, folks? In the life, in this life, nothing just happens. Nothing just happens. God allows and creates and makes things happen. There are no accidents in God's kingdom. There are no accidents in your life either. Here's the principle, and I'm going to try and explain this. Human effort can only put lipstick on the pig. 
Only God can change the nature of the pig. You know, it's so funny. I asked Marty. I said, oh, yeah, okay. That's it. Hey, Rob, good stuff. And I thought they were laughing at what I said. Yeah, right. Yeah. Only God can change the nature of the pig. Here's the principle, and I didn't write this on the board. Never confuse your hand with God's hand. It says the hand of the Lord was upon him. Never confuse your hand with God's hand. The principle is nothing happens without God's blessing. In John 15, 5, Jesus was talking about the vine and the branches, and he makes a very startling claim to the disciples and to us. He says, without me, you can do nothing. Really? Without me, you can do what? Do we really believe that? If that's true, why do we try so hard to make it happen? Think about it. Now, when Jesus says nothing, he means nothing supernatural, nothing eternal, nothing that changes things from the inside out. Jesus uses the analogy of a vine and branches. You know the parable in John 15. Jesus says, if you don't remain intimately connected with me, the vine, the branch will die and it will produce no fruit, right? You dry up. A branch that, you ever, you ever pruned, have you ever pruned anything at your house? When you prune a branch and it falls away from the root source, what happens to it? It dies and it dries up. You know what the human solution to that is? You know what we try and do spiritually? We glue the branch to the vine and we glue the fruit to the dead branch. And we go, look, look at this. Man, we got some fruit here. Yeah. We put lipstick on the pig and go, ain't it a pretty Miss Piggy? Still a pig, right? Even if it's got makeup on. We plant silk trees in the backyard. And we say, aren't those beautiful? Look at them growing, man. We put artificial turf down. Or if you're in Kern City, you just spray paint the gravel green. I mean, yeah, that's what we do as humans. I'm not critiquing it, but there's no life in it. So when Jesus says, you can spray paint gravel, you can put silk trees up, but I alone can produce life. That's the hand of the Lord. No matter how closely, how close that branch is to the vine, if it's not connected, it can be this close, if it's not connected. Yeah, many, many people, Holly said, no matter how close the vine is to the branch, if the branch is not connected to the vine, you still got no life. There are people in the service today and in this room who are close but aren't connected. You know how you get disconnected? Simple. Disobey. Disobey. It's no problem. Now, it doesn't mean you're still not his child. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you, but it means your hearing aid doesn't work when you're disobeying. God has a good way to turn your hearing aid on. You know how you turn your hearing aid on? Pain. That's a good way to get the hearing aid turned on. So one of the things I tell myself, the Lord tells me too, Brad, if there's pain in your life, rule number one, check your connection. Right? If there's static on the line, check the connection. It doesn't mean I'm disconnected. It means check it. Go back to the Lord. Go back to the source. There's sin in my life that's repenting, that needs repenting. I need to repent of it if I want that connection. We make New Year's resolutions every year, right? We're going to do better. We're going to lose weight. <clears throat> we're going to get in shape. We're going to be nicer this year than we were last year. How often does that work? <laughs> How many of you are nicer this year than you were last year because of your New Year's resolution? I don't think it's possible to be nicer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> God is saying... All human effort is external. It fixes up the outside. We do Botox. We do tummy tucks. We do liposuction. We do makeovers. They're all external solutions to an internal problem. You know what the internal problem is? Aging. You're not, can we stop the aging process with lipstick? It can look better. I'm not critiquing lipstick, folks. Come on. If it helped, put it on. But I'm saying, don't get confused human effort with the hand of the Lord. And what we should be craving is the hand of the Lord working in our lives, not more human effort. Because the only thing human effort can produce is human results. 
don't be satisfied with human results because human results all stay here. There's no human result that's going to heaven. It's not going to happen. All your human effort stays here. Only the life of Jesus goes to heaven. See, we humans, we tend to believe <clears throat> that things happen only because powerful people make them happen. Right? Congress passes a law. Supreme Court makes a ruling. President issues an executive order. <clears throat> In our world today, we say someone is connected, connected, when they know who? Powerful people, right? Influential people, wealthy people. And our culture craves being connected to those people. Who's Ezra? You look at Ezra. Ezra is an unknown, he's an obscure priest of an enslaved people in a foreign land. It's been said it's not what you know, but who you know that counts. You ever heard that? Not what you know, but who you know. Ezra's not connected politically. Ezra's not connected militarily. Ezra's not connected financially. Ezra's not connected socially to anybody that matters in the Persian Empire. Now he doesn't know the king yet. The only powerful person that in Persia that Ezra's knew well was God himself. That should knock your socks off. Because he's connected to God himself, he gets everything that God wants him to have in order to accomplish his mission, which is taking the people back to the land. Here's the question. How did Ezra come to God to know God so well that God's blessing, God's hand was upon him? Read verse 9. And verse 10. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Underline the next word. Because the good hand of his God was upon him. Verse 10. For, underline for, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the God. Underline study. And to practice it. Underline practice and to teach, underline teach, his statutes and origins of Israel. Now let me give you the context. It says the first of the first month he left Babylon. That's the Jewish month of Nisan, the spring of 458 B.C. That's late March, early April, first month. This is the Jewish New Year. He left the Jewish New Year, first day, first month, left Babylon. And it says he got to back into the land of Israel on the first day of the fifth month, five months, four months later. Four months later, he got back into the land. So the question is, why was their four-month, 900-mile trip successful? It says, because why? Because the good hand of God was upon him, right? That's how they made this trip, right? My question is, why was God's blessing on them? What's verse 10 tell you? It says, for Ezra did some things, right? Prepared his, heart. Prepared his heart, set his heart. Here's the principle. Ezra's obedience put Israel in a place to safely receive God's blessing. This is not, by the way, this is not how to deserve God's blessing. No one can deserve God's blessing. No one can work to earn God's blessing. God's blessing is always by grace, right? Through faith, never by works. God blesses us because of who He is, not because of who we are. However, having said that, the principle is knowing and obeying God's Word allows you to receive God's blessing without damage or without harm. Here's the truth. Most people are experiencing as much blessing as God can entrust them with. I talk to people all the time and I go, ah, oh, if God would just do blah, 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 my life would be do, 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 do. And you say, I wonder why God doesn't, quote, bless them like they want to be blessed. How are we handling the blessings we already have? And if we're going to do a little assessment here and we say, God, I want more blessings. God says, well, how are you managing what I've already given you? Well, God, if you'd only give me some more, I would be really responsible. You know, 
if your five-year-old can't put their bicycle away, chances are you're not going to let them drive your car, right? They're not responsible with a pop gun. You don't buy them a 22. Faithful in little, faithful in much. The lesson here is somewhat convicting. Most of us want more of God's blessing, but if we're not careful, we'll mishandle what he gives us. By the way, even very godly people can forget this. You might want to just jot this reference down. 2 Chronicles 32. 2 Chronicles 32, 22 to 26, those four verses. And the example here is Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a very, very good king of Judah. Very good king of Judah. In verse 22, it says, The Lord saved Hezekiah and Jerusalem from the king of Assyria. Now, the king of Assyria had surrounded them with 185,000 troops, going to capture the land. And it says, God saved Hezekiah and from the hand of all the others around him and guided him on every side. Sounds like a lot of blessing. God saves you from 185,000 troops that have come to kill you. God protects you. God gives you guidance. It also says that when all these miracles of God happened to Hezekiah, a lot of other people began to pay attention. They began to notice. Verse 23 says, And many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem. I mean, this is a miracle, right? 185,000 people, soldiers got killed, God slew them, uh, and people got pretty impressed, and it says they brought gifts to the Lord. That's pretty good. You know, when God blesses, what should you do? Tell others. Well, those of you who were in the 8 o'clock service, what was their opening number? When do, you, when do you give praise? When do you give blessing? When you're in an abundant land and when you're in a desert, when you're in pleasure and when you're in pain, what are you blessing? The name of the Lord, because he never changes, even though your circumstances do. But it also says in verse 23, 2 Chronicles, that many of these people were bringing gifts to Hezekiah himself. I mean, lots of gifts. So he was exalted in the sight of all the nations. So Hezekiah has now been blessed by God by being, number one, rescued from the Assyrians. And number two, he had a mortal illness and he said, Lord, I need my life spared. God says you got another 15 years. So he had two major blessings. The nation was saved from the Assyrian invaders, and Hezekiah got his life back. God healed him. It's interesting at that point in time to evaluate how Hezekiah responded to all this good stuff. Miraculous healing, miraculous rescue from the nations. Verse 25, unfortunately, this is you and me. Too much. 2 Chronicles 32, 25. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him in Jerusalem. Hezekiah does what we do too often. He took the credit himself for God's blessing. And I am so guilty of this, it's pitiful. It's really pitiful. I was uh, talking with a friend a couple weeks ago, and I was, uh, my, my commentary was, you know, if, if everybody worked as hard as I do, they would do what I do, and they would have what I have. Amen. <laughs> do you know something? There are many people throughout the world that work 18-hour days that are still in poverty. There are people that are much, much more faithful to the Lord, and they're getting their heads whacked off, being persecuted for their faith. Our human effort does not produce the blessing, whatever it is. The blessing comes from the hand of God. Now, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to be diligent. It means we are commanded to be diligent. But the diligence doesn't make it happen. The blessing of God makes it happen. Hezekiah forgot that. He took the credit himself, and he thought he deserved all those good things. And so God brought judgment. Now, it does say in the next verse that he did repent from that, which is wonderful. So the point is, when God blesses us, with what we think is blessing, good things or bad things, however you want to define that. And I say comfortable things or uncomfortable things. Maybe that's a better way to look at it. Our response should always be to give God praise for that as opposed to taking credit for it ourselves. 
The human tendency, if it's a good thing, we take credit for it. If it's a bad thing, what do we do? I don't know why God would allow this to happen to such a good person like me. Right? It's human nature. It's human nature. Faithful and little, faithful and much. Now, verse 10 tells us how Ezra became skilled in the law of God. What's the first phrase it says in verse 10 of chapter 7? How did he become skilled? It said he prepared his heart. That means devotion and determination and commitment to keep and obey God's word. And he was disciplined his heart to do three things. What were the three things it says he did? To study, to practice, to teach. What is our mantra in this class? Now that you know, go do, right? So go do and teach. Study, practice, and teach. In order to study the word of God, you have to want to know what God has to say. How many people want to know what God has to say? Most of our culture does not interested in what God has to say. They want to know what some human oracle has to say. They don't want to find out what God has to say. You know, I assume most of you have a driver's license yet, still. And in order to get a driver's license, the first thing you do is take a written test, right? Say yes, yes. for those of you that did that at that point. Why do you take a written exam? You cannot obey a law you do not know, right? And if you do not know the law, somebody can get hurt or killed. Now, to study means you must be a student, a learner. Most every week in this class, what are the first five words out of my mouth? You will never stop being a student if you want to understand what God has to say. We are students forever. You will be students in heaven, by the way. You will continually learn the nature and the character of God through all eternity. He will per perpetually be revealing more and more and more of his eternal nature. So learn how to be a student now. The riches are beyond compare. Now the purpose of knowing is doing, correct? It says he not only studied, it says he practiced. I used to practice the piano years ago. And the ultimate aim of practice is not just to understand the music, it's the ability to rep reproduce on an instrument what the notes say on the page. And that takes practice. Now when you study for your driver's license, taking the written exam, that's knowing. What do we call practice in the driving exam? You behind the wheel, right? Somebody said behind the wheel. Why, do you, why is it not enough just to take the written exam and then get behind the wheel? Why is that not enough? Knowing about the laws of the land is a different knowledge than actually how to handle a vehicle. You have to do both. You have to study and you have to actually drive the wheel. If you want to learn to swim, can you get it from a textbook? You have to do what? You have to get in the water. Interesting, our daughter Mia knows horses, but she doesn't read books about horses. She's on a horse about five days a week, right? You have to actually get on the horse if you want to learn to ride. That's part of the nature of the beast at that point. James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers, because hearers do what? They delude themselves. Wow. Verse 25 says, the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Here's the principle. If you hear the truth and fail to act on it, you deceive yourself, right? Everybody knows about the benefit of diet and exercise in this country, right? Everybody knows that it's a good thing to do. But we still have 30% of the population that are clinically obese. My father knew that smoking was lethal and he smoked until the day he died. So knowing is apparently not sufficient. That's interesting. Many people cram their head full of knowledge, but if they don't act on it, they don't receive a blessing. So here's the application. I challenge you. Most of you will not do this. 
I'm telling you right now, most of you will not do this. Every week in this class, do not walk out the door until you write down only one thing that you will do this week as a result of what you learned. Don't leave here until you write down, and there can only be one. I don't want three. I don't want five. Most of us struggle with just one. In 50 minutes, you've learned a whole lot of new stuff. You know something? If you don't act on it, you just wasted your time. You get a head full of knowledge, and God says, by the way, I don't bless knowing. I bless doing. So, you know, that would mean for some of us, bring something to write with. What a novel thought. I mean, I'm going to take notes. I'm going to write something down. Uh-huh. Because you're near my age. If you don't write it down, you don't remember it. Even if you do write it down, you've got to go find the card where you wrote it down. Here's the challenge. Every week in manna, write down just one thing that you will do this week. Just one. Capiche? Got it? Okay. <laughs> Is that the one thing? <laughs> Are you gonna remind us? <laughs> I will. I will. Remind us. Remind us. Okay. Consider yourself reminded. He not only studied, he not only practiced, but he actually taught. He transmitted God's word to others. He passed the baton of faith on to others. By the way, did you know that you're always teaching others? Every one of you in the room is a master teacher. Every single one of you is a master teacher. You know why you're a teacher? Because somebody's always watching you. You may not even know when they're watching you. As a matter of fact, most of the time, you would rather they not watch you. <laughs> but they do watch you all the time. You have no idea what you say or what you do, what the impact is. Because the lessons others learn from you depend on more than what than more on what you do than what you say talk is cheap behavior is expensive the best lessons are always caught they're not taught people just observe right our children our grandchildren our co-workers our friends sometimes people we don't even know i remember being in a particular location and uh, talking about being deceived there's this beautiful woman walking with a girlfriend, and I'm going, wow. And then she opens her potty mouth. And, and I, never saw, I never heard so much sewage in my life. And I thought, whoa. What's on the outside is not always what's on the inside. You can put lipstick on a pig, but you can't change the nature of the pig. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can, and I say that because years ago I used to have a potty mouth. So I'm, I'm owning this, right? I'm owning this. Verse 12 tells us that it, the king of, Assyr, of, of Persia was so moved by God's hand in Ezra's life that he issued a decree. Verse 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace. And now, verse 13, I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you, verse 15, to bring silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel who is dwelling in Jerusalem, verse 21. This one will blow your mind. And I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently. Can you dig that? He appoints Ezra to be his ambassador to Israel. It's a cabinet-level position. Now, the historical context is as follows. Three years before this, in 460 B.C., Greece sails down the Mediterranean, goes to war against Egypt, conquers Memphis in 459 B.C. That means the Greeks control the entire west coast or east coast of the Mediterranean. Phoenicia, Israel, etc. If you're Persia and Greece is controlling the coastline, what do you do? You think, I need some help to the west of my kingdom. I need a strong ally to be a buffer state between the Greeks and me. Israel can get that job done. 
if we put Israel back in the land and strengthen them, they'll be a pro-Persian ally to buffer us against the Greeks. That's, that's, that's what's motivating our Xerxes, politics. God uses the Persians' fear of Greece to get his people back in the land. God will use politic politicians daily to accomplish his purposes. Some of us look at Washington and we go, God, <clears throat> you need to come back from vacation and deal with this. Nobody gets in office without God's approval. You don't see what he's doing in Washington. God is working in Washington. Even if your party's not there, he's still working, believe it or not. Yep. Uh, their religious beliefs at the time also thought that the gods were uh, geographic. A very local. So yep. his, his giving of the gold and the silver to the Hebrews was to bolster their god in their area. So <clears throat> yeah, he needed a strong, like Dan said, they believed in local gods. You know, there was a God of Israel, but he wasn't the God of glory. He wasn't the God of everything. He just happened to be a local God that was kind of tied to that geography. So he gave him a bunch of gold and silver and says, you, you sacrifice to that God so he'll be strong and protect my west coast. So it's almost a bribe or a tribute. Well, it's absolutely true. We're going to find that out here in a second. If you look at verse 6, it says he got everything he requested. And if you read further down, you're going to find out what he requested. Ezra asked for and the king authorized... Ezra to take his group to go to Jerusalem and teach, and teach God's law. A pagan king tells a Jewish priest to take people to land on his west coast and teach God's law, even though he didn't believe it. It's kind of amazing. The king gives Ezra silver and gold to buy supplies for the temple. This kind of sounds like the Egyptians, right? When Israel was leaving, they said, take all this gold, take all this silver, but, you know, we're tired of dying, so please leave. Verse, you know, the, the king orders the government treasures in his provinces to supply Ezra with whatever else he might need. That's a blank check on the most powerful emperor in the world at that point to an obscure priest named Ezra, and the only connection Ezra has with anybody is he knows God very well. Folks, stop getting involved in trying to build your name and connections with the important people of this life. If you know God, that's the only connection that counts. He also orders that the king is going to issue tax exemption to every one of the temple workers. If you're working in the temple, no taxes. Clearly, the king wants the temple to operate and the priests to pray for him. And the last thing, he orders Ezra to set up a judicial system and enforce the law. Now, Ezra has a proper response to this blessing. If you go to verse 27, what does Ezra do? Verse 27, Ezra, who's received all this from the king, he doesn't suck up to the emperor and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Artaxerxes. What does he do? Verse 27. He goes to the Lord because he knows the Lord's the source of the blessing. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is Israel, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God. So an obscure priest only knows God, goes in front of the most powerful empire of the day, gets everything he asks for. Because he said, The hand of the Lord went before me and prepared the way. It's like water skiing behind the Queen Mary. Kind of a big wake, you know? Here, here's a little principle for you. Gratitude to God is a good antidote for arrogance. Gratitude to God is a good antidote for arrogance. If you're feeling a little high and mighty, get on your face, thank God for his blessings, most of all a blessing of himself. It'll help cure the arrogance. Because God hates arrogance. Holly, you gave me a phrase. It was it toxic or, or pride. repels? Pride is God repellent. Pride is God repellent. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Pride is God repellent. And most of us carry more pride than we think. Pardon? Yeah, it's people repellent too. If you, if you have people around you that are proud and arrogant, you're not, you don't want to hang with them, right? Generally. So... 
God went before Ezra to gave him favor with the king and the entire administration. And it says, he gathers, verse 28, he gathers leading men. He's a good leader. He's got to assemble a cohort of people to go back with him. And if you go to chapter 8, verse 15, he says he assembles this group. They camp three days at the river Ahava, and they run into a problem. And the problem in chapter 8, verse 15, is they've got no Levites. That's a big problem. If you're going to go back and establish temple service and temple worship, how do you do that without Levites? You don't. They're supposed to run the temple, and they're supposed to teach the people. If you don't have anybody to teach the people run the temple, you don't have any services. That's a big problem. That was the whole purpose of going back. So he spends some time recruiting some Levites. Chapter 18 tells us that God arranged for Levites to come to them, and they did. And in verse 21, they're getting ready to jump off now for this four-month, 900-mile trip. And what's Ezra doing in verse 21? He does what? It says he proclaims a fast. Why? Humble themselves before God. Why do they humble themselves before God? They, they want a safe journey, right? You know, when we travel, we don't think there's a lot of risk in travel, so we don't spend a lot of time praying, right? Pack the suitcase, fire the GPS up, gas the car, and go. This wasn't exactly a trip to McDonald's. This is 900 miles. This is four months, right? Verse 22 says... I'm asking God for safety because I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy because I'd already said, God, the hand of God will protect us. He had gone to the king and he said, we're going to make this trip. And by the way, God will take care of us on the way because he's almighty, all powerful, etc. And the king said, by the way, do you want some troops and horsemen? If Ezra said, oh boy, we really need those troops and horsemen, but we really think God's going to take care of us. And you're the king and you say what? I don't think you really believe God's going to take care of you because you're asking for troops and horsemen. So in what is your faith? And sword, right? We don't really believe God's going to do this. Ezra was concerned with God's reputation. He told the king, God's going to take care of us. Now, you know what the application is? We run our mouth all the time about the power of God in our lives. And you know what we do? You give me a diagnosis. And the first thing I'm going to say... Pray that God will give me a competent doctor. Where's my faith? I'm not saying go find an incompetent doctor so you can really get a miracle. I'm not saying that. But do a heart check. Where is your faith at that point? I'm not saying don't get medical care, don't get the best medical care. I think you should do that. But do a gut check. Where's my faith? Do I really ask God for healing or do I say, help the docs really figure this thing out? Now, God can use the docs to heal you, but who's the great physician? He is, right? Here's the principle. This blew me away. I didn't even like the fact that I wrote this down, but it's true. Many people claim to have faith. Few people will live a life that requires faith. Very, very, very few people that will live a life that requires faith. Do you know when Brad lives a life that requires faith, it's usually because God cuts off bridges everywhere and that's all I got. Lord, it's you, baby. You know why? It's not that I chose you. It's because there's no other option. That's embarrassing. But it's true. So from time to time, the Lord cuts all the bridges and says, I'm it, Brad. You need to see that I can do what I said I'm going to do. Here's Ezra's problem. There's 5,000 people. Not one of them had traveled cross-country before. They'd been in Persia, right? they got children. They've got women. They're carrying 25 tons of silver. They're carrying 4 tons of gold. They're carrying silver articles for the temple that weighed 3 and 3 quarters tons. They're carrying 20 golden bowls. They have about 30 tons of precious metals for temple worship, right? Millions and millions of dollars. 900 miles across very, very tough territory with lots of enemies, no military escort. You know what they were doing? They're betting their life that God will keep his word. Now, the obvious question is pretty tough. Have any of us ever had to bet our life on God's word? If God doesn't come through, I am going to die. I'm not going to make it. Some have. 
And God may put some of us in that position in the next months or years to demonstrate who he is. If I was Ezra, I could see praying for three days. Do you know I have never, ever prayed nonstop for three days in my life? I mean, just fasted and prayed for three straight days. You want to know something else? I'm utterly convinced God could do some things in my life where I would have no problem praying for three days straight. He could do that in your life too. That might be a blessing. It might be the best blessing because it reconnects us with him. Verse 23 says, So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter. What's the last three words? Four words. And he listened to us. He answered our prayers. I think God longs to answer our prayers. He longs for more of a relationship with us than we want with him. So let's review. Here's the key idea. God is always working. When you trust and obey him, he will work through you. It means if you want him to work through you and you are now disobedient, he's got a clogged channel. Your disobedience is plugging the stream up. You got to repent so he can work through you. John 15, 5, human effort only puts lipstick on the pig. Only God can change the nature of the pig. <laughs> we are the pig. Do you understand that? If you didn't get that, I'm just making it real clear. We are the pig. We always put lipstick on stuff. We justify our behavior. We're going to do better. Self-improvement, blah, blah, blah. Dust and ashes, baby. Only Jesus can change you from the inside out. 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 8 and 10. Knowing and obeying God's word allows you to receive God's blessing without damage to your soul. Most people are experiencing as much blessing as God can entrust to them. James 1. Every week in manna, write down only how many things? One. Okay, I'm reminding you. I'm reminding you. <laughs> Get your pencil out. Write down one thing between now and the time Darren gets done with prayer. You might pray about, Lord, what's the one thing you want me to do? That would be a good prayer request, by the way. Lord, what's the one thing this week that you want me to obey? This week, one thing. Pray about it. All right. Are we good? Three people said it was good. The rest of you, I'm not so sure. <laughs> They're writing down the thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the chief pig. I'm the chief pig. All right. I do love you. Now that you know, go and do. Easy words, right?